Welcome to our weekly podcast. If you're a guest with us today, we're just over the halfway point in a message series called Love Does. This is a series focused on encouraging and strengthening the marriages in our church. Here at OCC, we believe that marriage is meant to be an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Marriage is meant to be a good thing and a relationship that glorifies God. We spent the first week talking about some practical biblical principles that help us fight for a stronger marriage. We then turned our attention to 1 Corinthians 13, the great hymn of love, where the Apostle Paul wrote about the characteristics of love. All 15 of these characteristics were written in verbal form, which means they're meant to be lived out in everyday life. You see, this passage isn't describing what love is. It's describing what love does. The instruction that we have in 1 Corinthians 13 is meant for the corporate family of faith. It's meant for the body of Christ. It's describing how Christians are to love one another because we've experienced God's love in our own life. But I've made the case that we can't love and serve one another well in the church if we don't love and serve our families well in the home, especially our spouse. Although we often think of 1 Corinthians 13 as a warm and fuzzy chapter, It's actually very challenging the closer we look. If we replace the word love with the name Jesus, we're given a perfect description of the character of Jesus. Yet, if we replace the word love with our own name or even the name of our church, it's easy to see that we all fall short every single time. I don't think this should discourage us, though. I think this should be a reminder for all of us that as we grow in our walk with Christ, we need to rely on God's grace, his mercy and forgiveness every step Of the way. The first two characteristics of love love is patient and love is kind. Say something positive by the use of a positive. The next set of characteristics love does not envy, love does not boast, it it is not proud, rude, or self seeking. They say something positive by the use of a negative. These characteristics help us understand what love does by describing what love does not do. So today we're going to pick up where we left off by focusing in on the next set of characteristics. Now before we talk about these next few characteristics, I'd like to read 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 7 so that we all have a solid foundation to build from. So if you have a Bible with you or you're using the Bible app, I want to encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13 beginning in verse 1. This is what we read. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. If you're taking notes today, I want to encourage you to write down this first characteristic, that love is not easily angered. Love is not easily angered. The Greek word for the phrase easily angered is the word 
parakzuntai. This word refers to someone having a violent yet temporary crisis of emotion. <laughs> I shared that with my wife this week. She said, so basically you're acting like a child. And I think that's a good description. Uh, Paul is reminding his readers that love is not irritable. Uh, love is hard to offend and quick to forgive. I said in week one that love has a long fuse. Being easily angered is the opposite of that. The truth is, we all have people in our lives who provoke us or who rub us the wrong way. I mean, you probably have coworkers, neighbors, family members, or even people at church who get on your nerves sometimes. When we're around people like this, uh, the common response is to blame them for making us feel the way that we feel instead of checking our own response and seeing if our attitude and our actions are loving. So the real question that we need to ask ourselves as we learn about this particular characteristic is this. Am I easily irritated and offended by others? We often think that the grass will be greener on the other side. You know, if you didn't have to be around a certain coworker, if you didn't have to be around a particular family member, if your neighbor would just keep to themselves, then you wouldn't feel the way that you feel. I think it's so easy to point the finger and the blame when other people irritate us instead of checking our own attitude and actions. Growing up, I shared a room with my younger brother until I moved out of the house and went to college. And I can't tell you how many arguments we got into because one of us did something that just irritated the other. Uh, Dirty laundry left on the floor, not flushing the toilet. I think that was the worst. Uh, Staying up too late when the other person was tired or waking up too early when the other person just wanted to sleep. I mean, these were all things that uh, both of us did that irritated the other person. I remember getting so upset with my brother for nothing more than him being in the same room as me when I wanted to be alone. You know, we've all been there. You want some alone time and people just kind of rub you the wrong way. There's a lot of challenges when you have to share a room with a sibling, but you know what? I'm glad that I did. I didn't like it at the time, but I can see now that it was good for me. I learned to share. I learned to work through issues, think about the other person's needs first, and, and I do think it brought us closer together. My wife and I have four sons, and they each share a room with another sibling. I think this is good for them because it gives them the opportunity to live in tension sometimes with the other person as they learn to be the young men God has created them to be. So instead of lashing out at what their siblings say or do, my wife and I are able to teach them about this important characteristic of love, that love is not easily angered. It's not irritable. Paul was addressing a group of Christians who had some anger issues. And 2,000 years later, if we're honest, I think we'd say we struggle with the exact same thing. Now, when it comes to marriage, I believe there are some people who live by the motto, never pass up an opportunity to get upset with your spouse. Now, as crazy as this sounds, friends, our actions tell the truth about what we really believe. When something goes wrong, when there's an issue in your marriage, it's easy to take full advantage of the situation by lashing out about how hurt and about how frustrated you are at the other person instead of responding in love. Now, people who are easily angered or who are irritable, um, they're usually locked, loaded, and ready to overreact when the opportunity presents itself. So Paul is reminding his readers that minor problems should not lead to major reactions. All right, let me say that again. Minor problems should not lead to major reactions. Real love doesn't get angry or hurt by others unless there's a legitimate reason, unless there's a reason for righteous anger. Righteous anger is being angry at the things 
that God is angry about and then responding in a godly way. I love this quote from Stephen Kendrick. He's the author of the book, The Love Dare. He says, a loving husband will remain calm and patient, showing mercy and restraining his temper. Rage and violence are out of the question. A loving wife is not overly sensitive or cranky, but exercises self-control. She chooses to be a flower among the thorns and responds pleasantly during prickly situations. The truth is, if you and I are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, if we're loving others well, we'll be a joy, not a jerk. I think that would make a good t-shirt, be a joy, not a jerk. Being easily angered is a clear indication that selfishness is present where love is supposed to reside. Now, we're easily angered for a number of reasons, but two of those reasons, I think, are stress and selfishness. Um, Stress will weigh you down. It'll drain your energy. It gives you an unjustified reason to have an ungodly reaction towards others. You know, we get stressed out by a number of things, relationships. So maybe you're You have an important relationship in your life and you're arguing, there's division, there's unresolved conflict. We get stressed out by overworking or by having a lack of rest. All of these things can bring on stress, which sets us up to be easily angered and and irritable. Now that doesn't give us an excuse, but it does set us up for these things. I love God's word because it gives us insight um, really into all areas of life. It gives us insight into how we can avoid unhealthy stress and for how we can respond correctly to difficult people and difficult situations. I want to give you uh, just a couple of truths. These are sub-points that if you want to write down, you can. Uh, The first is this. Remember to let love guide your relationships so you aren't caught up in unnecessary arguments. So if you want to write down something short, just remember to let love guide your relationships. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. uh, The Apostle Paul wrote these words. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So Christians are called to be holy, which means set apart. We're set apart by God. We're we're different. We've been radically transformed and changed from the inside out. We're called to clothe ourselves uh, with mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You could say that every day that we wake up, we're to put those things on, just like we put on our clothes. We're called to make allowances for each other's faults and to forgive each other because we've been forgiven in Christ. And then Paul says the key to all of this is love. Love is what binds us all together. This is the kind of agape love that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 13. So remember to let love guide your relationships. The second thing is um, pray about your worries instead of tackling them on your own. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 6 through 7. This is a wonderful passage. Um, it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. So that's, that's the antidote to worry, right? That's the medicine that we need. It's prayer. Paul writes, tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So instead of worrying, 
Pray about what's going on in your life. You can be honest with God about whatever it is that you're going through. As you pray, as you give your worries to him, you can claim the promise that you're gonna experience God's peace in your life. God's peace will guard your heart and your mind as you live for Jesus. I think this is a good reminder for us that prayer is meant to be our first line of defense, not our last resort. Far too often, we go through difficult seasons, and we have difficult relationships. Maybe you're going through a difficult season with your spouse right now, and uh, you, you, you exhaust every opportunity, um, every single option to try to make things better, and then finally, you come around uh, to prayer. Friends, prayer is not meant to be our last resort. It's meant to be our first line of defense. We lead with prayer because we trust that God knows what's going on in our lives, that his will uh, is best, we bring those things to him. All right, so pray about your worries instead of tackling them on your own. And then the third kind of sub-point is this. Remember to rest. Remember to rest. God has designed our bodies with a need for rest. In fact, God's word tells us to take a Sabbath day every week for worship and rest. This allows us to recharge and refocus our lives on what truly matters. Now, I don't have time to fully explain Sabbath rest today, but I can tell you this. If you'll set aside one day a week for worship and rest, one day a week to do the things that add value to your life and to the life of others, you will not regret it. Rest is a necessary part of life. It helps us avoid unnecessary stress, and it'll ultimately remind us to love others well. We're also easily angered or irritated because of selfishness. So we have stress, and then there's selfishness. Stephen Kendrick wrote that when you're irritable, The heart of the problem is primarily a problem of the heart. This is a true statement. It comes directly from Scripture. Listen to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And then you jump to the New Testament. Matthew uh, chapter 12, the latter part of verse 32 says, For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. So in our relationships, in our marriages, what comes out of our mouth is an indication of what's in the heart. And being easily angered is an issue of the heart. When there's an issue of the heart, friends, uh, there's only one person who can address the need correctly. So if you've noticed that you're easily angered, that you're irritable in your marriage, I want to encourage you to confess that sin to your spouse and then take it to God, who is the only one who can operate effectively. God's plan for your life is to lead you down the right path and to grow you into the husband or wife He's created you to be. Now, I know this is not an exhaustive list of instruction, but it's a reminder that love is not easily angered. And truth be told, I think we could all use uh, this truth in our life. And we could explore this and, and learn to live this out so that we're living for Christ and loving our spouse well. The second truth for today is this, that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is the second characteristic of love that we're going to talk about. Paul is saying love doesn't build an account of all the times you've been wronged by others. Love doesn't store up the memory of all the wrongs you've received. I've been using the Reminders app on my iPhone a lot lately. It's an amazing app. I mean, I can say, hey Siri, remind me to send an email to our elders on Monday at 8 a.m., or, hey, Siri, remind me to call a particular person on Wednesday at 2. I've found that the Reminders app is an amazing tool for storing things away that I need to recall later on. When it comes to the hurt 
that you and I have experienced in this life, specifically the things that others have done to us, I see far too many Christians storing these hurts away like we store things in the Reminders app. I mean, we put them away just so that we can bring them back up if we ever need to use them against someone else. We carry these things with us for far too long, and in doing so, we go through life looking in the rear view mirror instead of looking ahead to where God is leading us. The Greek word for the phrase, uh, keeps no record of wrongs, means to credit to someone's account. I learned something pretty cool this week, and I think we'll all be able to relate to this. If you're familiar with Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, um, it's the same word that's used by Scrooge when we read about him recording in his ledger all the things that people owe him. So he keeps a record of these things because he wants to use it against them when the time is right. When paraphrasing this characteristic, Alistair Begg said, um, where love has invaded a church, it will not be filled with people who love to store in their memory bank the record of wrongs received. Man, that's such a great line. So in our marriages, we shouldn't keep a ledger physically or mentally of all the wrong things that our spouse has done to us. The truth is, and we've said this in previous weeks, Within the marriage relationship, I mean, that's two people who are not perfect. We're we're sinful people. Um, Your spouse is going to fail you. They're going to disappoint you. That's part of life where we're not perfect people. I think Paul is saying love doesn't store away and then bring back to the surface all the wrong things that have been done. I understand that every person is unique. Every marriage is unique. But holding on to past hurt so that it can be used as a weapon later on that's only going to harm your marriage. Keeping a record of wrongs will prevent your marriage from going in the direction that God wants to lead it. You know, as Christians, we're called to learn from Jesus, to live like Jesus. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 4. Um, This is describing what Jesus has done for us, for those who are in Christ. Romans 4, 7, and 8 says, Blessed or blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So in Christ, there's not even the smallest possibility that our sins will be counted against us. In Christ, there's not even a 1% chance that God will open up the Reminders app to remind us about everything we've done wrong in this life. In fact, if you were to go to God, if you were to stand in front of God when the time is right, with a list of all the things that you've done wrong in this life, God would look at you and say, I don't even know what you're talking about. And this is because God loves us with an everlasting love, a love that keeps no record of wrongs. Remember, this list of characteristics perfectly describes the character of Jesus. In Christ, we've been completely covered by God's grace and forgiveness. And this awesome truth, friends, should lead us to keep no record of wrongs towards the people who've hurt us. Keeping no record of wrongs, this doesn't mean that we forget things. I don't think that's possible for humans. It just means that we don't store them away in order to bring them up at a later date. We forgive, and then we give our hurts to God. We trust him with the results. When we arrive at this characteristic of love, I'm reminded about how much I fail and how much I need God's grace in my life. When I think about Romans 4, 7 and 8, I allow that truth to be the fuel for how I love others, especially my bride. I'm able to love her well because God first loved me, because he gave himself up for me when I was at my very worst. 
Today, I want to encourage you to decide that you're going to keep no record of wrongs in your marriage. Decide that you're going to love your spouse in the way Christ loves his church. So love keeps no record of wrongs. The third characteristic for today is this. Um, Love does not delight in evil. Love does not delight in evil. When I was reading through the 15 characteristics that Paul wrote about, um, I was tempted to skip over this one because I didn't really understand it. But after reading some commentary from other pastors and listening to a message on this topic, um, I learned just how important this characteristic really is. The phrase, delight in evil, is highlighting a truth about every person here that we don't like to address. And that is, there's something about human nature that's intrigued by and even enjoys evil, especially in others. Just think with me for a second about the movies that we watch and the media that we bring into our homes. Now, I know for a lot of years, uh, the show The Bachelor was a popular show. Now, this might step on some toes today, but I, I think it's worth mentioning. The Bachelor is a show that literally celebrates sin and tries to disguise it as love. I mean, the show is full of premarital sex, drunkenness, lying, cheating, greed. The list goes on. Yet millions of Christians sit in front of the TV eagerly anticipating what's going to happen next. And I think this is an example of delighting in evil. People look to be entertained by the sinful actions of others. Uh, Gossip is another area where we delight in evil. I've heard Christians gloss over the dangers of gossip like it's not that big a deal. We do it in the church. We do it in our homes. I love this quote about gossip from Alistair Begg. He says, when we gossip, we gloat over the sins and shortcomings of others, and we derive a perverse form of satisfaction from restating them. I mean, is this not delighting in evil? Paul is reminding Christians that when God's love invades a church, when God's love invades a marriage, in the case of this series, it's going to transform people from the inside out. God's love will transform the way we respond to difficult people. It'll transform the way we forgive instead of keeping a record of wrongs. And it'll transform the way that we view the world. Instead of delighting in evil, we rejoice in the truth. God's love will transform us into the kind of people who live in love. I think a great filter for helping us determine if we're delighting in evil is Philippians 4 verse 8, which says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This verse could be a life verse for married couples. When the world around us gets darker, we should allow Christ's light to shine brighter through us. Our thoughts, our speech, and our actions should reflect God's love in a dark world. So love does not delight in evil. Now, the fourth and final characteristic for today is that love rejoices with the truth. And this is the opposite of uh, the characteristic that we just looked at. Instead of delighting in evil, love rejoices with the truth. And uh, for this characteristic, this Sunday, we're going to have a testimony uh, from two very special people in our church, uh, Bruce and April Hankey. Um, So instead of unpacking this for you in the form of a sermon, we're going to hear this in the form of a testimony. So I want to encourage you uh, to tune in on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and to watch the service online if you're not able to be here in person. And uh, we're going to hear from Bruce and April how reading God's word together as a married couple, how studying God's word has impacted their marriage 
uh, in such a powerful way. Well, friends, I'm excited uh, to be going through this series with you. I'm praying for all the marriages in our church uh, and even those who are dating and considering marriage. And I hope you'll tune in next week as we continue our study on the characteristics of love.